doing um i'm ewan and welcome to temp fans presents movements scenes and genres or as i'm desperately trying to coin msg 10 where we invite a guest on to talk us through a, a genre a scene a movement of music and um, through 10 songs of their choosing and as i said before this is nothing like that show where people are on an island that is deserted and they have to pick some discs about stuff it's totally different um, before we get started, just to let you know, this is a Temp Fans production, and if you fancy spending longer on individual artists, our podcast Temporary Fandoms is where you can do that. Um, also, if you fancy listening to this show and others moving forward with the music we're talking about, head on over to mixcloud.com slash tempfans, where you'll find Temporary Fandoms and you'll find um, MSG10. And listen to this uh, series for free or if you want to support the shows and the artist uh, you can subscribe or you can just listen to a like a podcast without actual music on your podcast player um, but i don't know why you'd want to do that um, all the links and spotify playlists are in the doobly-doo episode notes thingy right uh today's guest is, is well, I mean, if you try to research it, it's rapidly heading into polymath territory. Um, originally fronted a band which Stephen Mack called his new favorite band, Norwich's finest, the Gossip Rockers Violet Violet. And, and if you think Norwich, there was no competition, fuck off. Bear Suit were amazing. Um, writer of articles in a wide range of places from She Shreds to The Skinny to Guitar World. Um, if you've ever had a Stack Magazine subscription, you've You've seen her words somewhere. Um, one of the hosts of The Other Woman on Soho Radio, editor of the Whitstable Whistler, which I thought I would mispronounce, and that's actual print on print paper, and excitingly, author of the upcoming 33 and a third book about ESG's Come Away With Me, it is Sharia Moore. Hey, Sharia. Golly, you really worked hard <laughs> on that. That was absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, I thought I, I I was convinced I was going to say Whistler or Whitstable wrong yeah. at some point, and, and just uh, but no, we're good, we're good. We're, um, thank you for coming on. My absolute pleasure. It's lovely to be amongst the palm trees. <laughs> I jest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like instead of desert island discs, maybe something like rural mm. mountain records <laughs> or. Secluded, yeah, there's secluded cabin songs, well, something like that. That doesn't really set the scene for today's kind of club anthems. So I'm taking you <laughs> further into the metro metropolitan scene. <laughs> but that's probably a good time to ask the question, what are we doing today? So you are heading to New York with me. We're going back to the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, as you so poetically put it, with the book coming out in a couple of years' time, I thought it made sense to hone in on the no-wave scene that kind of spawned the Scroggins sisters and their 99 Records label mates. Okay, so... I mean, we'll get to it in a point, but there's two things you mentioned there yes. that I just want to sort of, I mean, I'm going to ask some questions today that if they sound like I'm being an idiot, I'm deliberately doing it to be the voice of the listener, yes. not because I don't understand myself. Um, so no wave. Yes. That doesn't sound like a thing. <laughs> 
so it, um, obviously it sounds like we're saying new wave incorrectly, um, mm-hmm. but actually... In like a New York accent. That, hey, no wave. New wave. Um, <laughs> but actually that was kind of the point, that it was this kind of reaction against rock and roll cliches at the time and instead sort of channeled this noise and dissonance and atonality. So apparently another reason I love it so much is that it was a pun based on the rejection of new wave. So people kind of wanted to nod to that. I read somewhere that people thought it was perhaps Lydia Lunch, who I nearly picked as a track because I've seen her before and she's absolutely amazing. Um, but it was with Sonic Youth and I didn't, I wasn't feeling it. So she's, she gets a nod because it was almost her coined phrase. But equally on the Sonic Youth note, um, Thurston Moore says that he actually saw No Wave graffitied. It's a bit like that fabled story of Kurt Cobain and Smells Like Teen Spirit. He apparently saw No Wave graffitied on the side of CBGB's. Um, so that's where it might have come from as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so first of all, the, the Kurt Cobain was on, was it Kathleen Hanna's wall? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, she's, yeah, spray that. Was that. It. Yeah. And secondly, CBGBs, weirdly, the first time I ever heard the name mm. of the, the club CBGBs was episode one of this season, oh. of, um, where we talk about the Hoboken Sound in New Jersey. Yes. So everything is coming together. Beautiful. Narrative. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we've got No Wave. And we're talking about, this is a 70s, 80s thing? Going late uh, 70s into the very start of the 80s. And then we probably nudge up to, there's a lot of 81. um, And then we might nudge up to 83, which is when ESG's debut actually came out. Okay, great. So um, obviously we're mentioning ESG a lot and you'll hear the word scrogging sisters (laughs) and ESG um, multiple times throughout the next probably 45 minutes hour of your life um what's the first track let's 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 get into this what's the first track we're going to listen to yes so i've picked this track um the original band that this guy uh fronted and was part of um came out in 1979 and both this track i've chosen and dinosaur which was his previous band um came out on 99 records so i wanted to start you know sort of late 70s i'm thinking sort of around the time that um studio 54 was happening so that Mm -hmm. obviously came out the shell of the television studio studio 52 and it was launched in this sort of peak era of disco dancing in 1977 and was noted for like its celebrity guests, its strict entry policies. I guess we're looking at a kind of New York Berghain type vibe and also mm-hmm. like rampant drug use. I mean, it just looked, cr- if you, if you Google Studio 54 and just see pictures of Bianca Jagger entering on a white stallion, that isn't, that's real. Like that actually happened. It sounds amazing. <laughs> so um, we, we're starting there. Um, it's Loose Joints is the name of the New York based composer. He's also a producer, multi-instrumentalist. Um, and that was the moniker for Arthur Russell. And he brought that kind of spirit of disco from the late seventies into this project. He had num- numerous projects. I mentioned Dinosaur on 99 Records as well. Um, none of them were that hugely influential, but I think they did probably um, help towards building out House and Garage, which were two strains of dance music that came from kind of the disco era. So this track I am a big fan of. Um, It came out, it did come out in 1983, so I skipped ahead a little bit, but hopefully the context sets it in late 70s at least. 
Wonderful. So, um, if you're, as you said before, if you're listening on mixcloud.com slash temp fans, you are now going to spend a few minutes listening to the sound of cocaine. Um, <laughs> whereas if you're on a normal pod player, there is a Spotify playlist uh, in the in the notes below. So, loose joints. Um, so, Shuri, um, obviously one of the threads that we're going to be pulling out quite a lot today um and you will be fully exploring in your in your upcoming book but you said it's in a couple of years but mm. let's just let's just say upcoming, <laughs> upcoming um is it's about sampling and music rights and there's a reason why there's a big a, this is a big uh, area we need to look at and that's the next track um which has been described as one of the most sampled tracks in history, right? Well, so not actually. I did choose um, the flip side of this EP. So there were two songs on this EP, uh, Moody and UFO, and they both came out in 1981 as a kind of preview ahead of the record that would come out the full length in 1983. Um, so this is their earlier EP. It did become... And this is ESG, and right? this is ESG, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, but UFO, the B-side or the double A-side, however you want to put it, um, I think it's been sampled over 400 times, which is more than the hay from James Brown, which is just... What's, what's, the, what's the drum beat? What's, what's so the drum beat that's li- been sampled the most? It's um, the sound of that, guitar, that screeching guitar that yeah. hip hop artists just love so much, but in just like, like the sort of, that's it, siren exactly, thing, the yeah. siren. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, um, and I'll talk a bit more about this later. Cause I spoke to an incredible author called Cathy Iandoli for the book. He wrote, um, God save the Queens. It's like a history of hip hop, which is amazing. And, um, we talked a bit about why ESG have been sampled so much. And I think there is that element with the no way scene of having quite a lot of instrumentals and it just is so pliable to rap over. Um, and interestingly with this track, so, um, this was also sampled by the godfather of house music, Chippy, and actually only like four years later, which is kind of bizarre. So he takes this track from a bunch of sisters in the South Bronx and builds it into his, uh, 1985 single like this, which is also what, she says in the song um yeah. and later on uh, kind of 10 years later Nana cherry even has a go so her and a swedish producer christian folk um, um cover this track think, as well <laughs> do you think there's an element and, and we covered we covered the discography of esg mm. on, on temporary fandoms yeah. which, which which you came on to do you think there's an element of um samples being chosen for the sound yeah. and samples being chosen for the obscure coolness and that some of the ESG samples had this cachet mm. of, of, of coolness. Potentially, I think maybe in hindsight, so maybe for some of the 90s sampling that hap- that continues to happen. So people like The Prodigy and um, uh, there, are, there are tons, of, like even TLC, I think, had an, uh, a sample of UFO at some point. So potentially there. Um, but I think because sampling, it just becomes this kind of, um, it's a bit like Chinese whispers, I guess, where because the original credit gets lost and it gets tagged and tagged and tagged. I don't know if, by the end of that, it just is untraceable, which is such a shame for these women that wrote this track and it's been sampled so heavily. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think there's that cool element, but also just that, that it is the instrumental and it makes the hook, which we'll talk a bit more about for the next track as well. 
And this is and this is when we get to the word scrogging sisters. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, like, well, those who have listened to temporary fans will know all about this. However, can you give us a brief of of Ma and the scrogging sisters? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just so we, before we get into the trap, because they're quite, you know, a, a powerful shadow. They are. So ESG stands for Emerald, Sapphire and Gold. And they apparently that was coined because it was the sister's birthstones, which I really like as a, you know, a daughter of a very hippie-esque mother. Um, that really, I really relate to that. And so it was made up of the Scroggin sisters, which is Renee, who is the kind of founding front woman of the band um, on vocals, Valerie on drums, Deborah on bass and Marie played congas and also sang as well. Um, and then since their kind of inception in the late 70s early 80s when they were honestly like 16 they were just girls living in the Bronx and with Mars Scroggins and and she gifted them instruments for Christmas to kind of keep them off the streets and keep them safe in the projects and that's where the fabled story with them and Ed Ballam happens so he spots the the band at a talent show and decides that he's really excited by them wants to put them on lots but for those first few shows they go with their mum because they're they're too young to get into the clubs um so yeah that that's kind of the beginning of ESG and now they have a decade spanning like legacy and are still performing, you know, even I've interviewed Renee a few times and every time she says, Oh, you know, this is it. This is the last tour, but there's just something inescapable about them. They just can't stop moving. Um, just when you said the idea of having to go with, with their mum, they were so young, um, boy, around about 2000, 2001, maybe 2001, 2002. I can't remember. We went to the, see the enemy shockwaves, tour which was maximo park headlining yeah arctic monkeys who became really famous halfway through the tour and everybody came to see we are scientists and very first was mystery jets um we were sitting in the balcony um and mystery jets number one their dad played dad 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 played bass Ah. um, for the first album so there's these young kids and there's a dad (laughs) um and up in the up in the balcony was i'm guessing um, two grannies, an auntie, and four members of family all going, hey, yeah, oh, good luck. And just these young kids with giant instruments with their dad and the entire family waving from the top. It's just an image I'll, I'll never forget. Anyway, so I digressed a little bit. Um, and we're going to, the next track we're going to listen to is Moody by ESG. Um, so you mentioned that. Um, ESG was spotted by Ed Ballam. Yes. Um, you're going to need to give me more information. This is not a name I, I'm, I'm well aware of. Yeah, well, he's quite an elusive character. So he's sort of gone MIA since forming 99 Records. Um, and he hasn't really spoken much about it. He's basically like retreated from publicity and chats about it because it ended quite badly and principally because of this track um i'm gonna confess i hadn't listened to liquid liquid before i'm people will know me and people will know that my music taste is very much women um and non-binary centric so if i like a uh, <laughs> a male band they have to be really fucking good. Um, I do really like this, but oh my word. It, it, so our listener will immediately think we're playing a different track, but I can confirm it is Liquid Liquid's Cavern. Um, and it is notoriously sampled in Grandmaster Flash's iconic White Lies 
uh, don't do it. When I say sample, I mean essentially just using the whole riff. I mean... We- oh, so it's like um, uh, the Labby Sifri, I've got the... <laughs> when you listen to the Eminem version, they're going, wait, do 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 Wait, this is just the same song. Yeah, with a different <laughs> vocal line. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately for Liquid Liquid, a far more successful vocal line. Um, <laughs> and this, I think this kind of starts that swathe of problems for 99 Records. So they go into a lawsuit with Sugar Hill about this track. Just sounds like an awful idea. And it ultimately costs Ed Ballam his business. Um, so I'm that- just thinking of the uh, the sketch author's the sketch authors, the sketch artists in the courtroom yeah. of the Sugar Hill Gang. I'm like, that's brilliant. <laughs> yes, brilliant. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, yeah, so it's all all quite sad, really, especially because a lot of the bands that Ed Ballam chose and kind of um, gave this platform to on 99 Records were so intrinsic and so pioneering, as we'll see from the rest of the picks. Um, but it's almost like that tag team that I was talking about earlier where it just, it's influenced, but it's not traced back to him at all. So the main um, idea behind the book is basically to expose this story and question why for such an influential band like ESG, who, you know, really had a massive impact on dance music as we know it, they are, they remain a kind of footnote in history. And I think Liquid Liquid are the same because it's just been completely <laughs> blown out of the water by Grandmaster Flash. So, so I'm, I'm 37. I turned 37 recently. I, no, no, I'm 47. Oh my God. I turned 47 <laughs> recently. You see, this is age. But when I was a kid, I inherited a bunch of I don't know, vinyl from, from parents and whatnot. Mm. And there was always these sort of top of the pops compilations mm. and, and whatnot. And the word liquid liquid to me just sounds like one of those sort of, you know, there were sort of spin-off bands that just did the cover version or the dance the dancing girls or the dancing group that would be on when they couldn't have the artist on yeah you know and liquid liquid sound like the name of one of those it's a bit eurovision isn't it yeah and i but i say that as someone who was in a band called violet violet so if anything liquid liquid (laughs) did the double thing way before us and way before everything everything um but i do know what you mean it's it's funny as well because um you know what you were saying earlier about the narrative arc of this when i was doing my research and, and kind of connecting the dots there's just so much overlap. So I later found out that the band did re-release some of their tracks and they came back to the UK um, and they played at the Barbican in 2008 after a massive hiatus. And they famously supported uh, LCD Sound System in 2011 at their farewell show in Madison Square Garden. And I know for a fact that James Murphy's a massive ESG fan. Um, He's talked a lot about kind of rifling through his record racks when he's DJing and he always plays a bit of ESG and he always plays Liquid Liquid. So that must have been a phenomenal um, show to be at, that Madison Square Garden. (laughs) That's really good. Um, So it's Liquid Liquid and the track is? Cavern. Right, we're we're moving in towards track four and I'm just going to sort of try and loop back to... We're looking at a scene, right? So we're looking at the no-wave scene, this pushback against new wave, et cetera, et cetera. Um, was there, were there any elements of it actually being a scene of people who work together? So if you look at, say, mm-hmm. Elephant Six in Athens, you'd have different bands popping in and help, working with mm-hmm. each other. Or if you looked at, I don't know, Manchester scenes or, mm-hmm. or wherever, certain scenes, the bands 
they know each other, they play together. There's a camaraderie. Grunge, yeah. etc. Mm. You know, I don't know, Eddie Vedder turned up in about 10 different bands <laughs> at some point before they, they, they made it big with the flannel. What, what was the actual scene mm. here? Well, it's interesting because I, I guess for me, I'm taking No Wave, but I'm also layering it with this 99 Records sheen as well. Um, and certainly from that angle, they um, they had the kind of era and the ethos of a rough trade in the day. So I spoke to one of the other amazing people I spoke to for the book was Vivian Goldman, who wrote Revenge of the She Punks. And um, she, we're going to come on to her, so I won't reveal too much. But Good, she, that's a great name for a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a great book as well. Absolutely incredible. Um, but she talks about the similarities between Ed Ballam and Jeff Travis as well, and that kind of culture that they created, and also this physical space. So much as Rough Trade has their record shops that you can go in, you can get your coffee, you can see live music. They had a similar space and feel to uh, 99 Records in New York as well. And I know that Vivian wrote in the book about ESG and their kind of camaraderie with Bush Tetris, uh, which is the next track that we're going to play and how Bush Tetris lent them some gear at one of their shows. Uh, I don't know if that's because like something bust or um, is whatever. There a, is there a similarity in terms of like, if you listened, mm. it's like if you listened to different bits of music that came out of Seattle in the early nineties, you'd go, Oh, yeah. they all, there's a, there's a sound. Um, yeah. So this is Bush Tetras, and yeah. we've got ESG, and we've had Liquid Liquid. Would you be yeah. able to identify a sound, or was that lack of identifiable sound what made the scene? Yeah, it's funny. I think I almost think that it's actually that, ironically for the name, it's more that they bridge way too many or like, you know, a welcome amount of genres. So it's almost that they're creating these bridges between Afrobeat, between funk, between rock and roll and punk and post-punk and that kind of thing. Although scratch that, it wouldn't have been post-punk because punk hadn't really. (laughs) It's Um, it's, it's pre-post-punk. Yeah, it's pre-post-punk. So... Yeah, I guess for me, it feels like that. It feels that they're ta- they're tapping into lots of different sounds to get this really unique no-wave sound of the bands. I mean, certainly for the last two that we heard, Ambush Tetris, that we'll go into, it is quite funky. It is danceable. And I think that's why I wanted to nod to the disco at the start, because it feels like they're bringing in a lot of that. But with some of the other bands, you know, there's a bit more of a reggae influence or there's a bit more of that kind of avant-garde jazz um but bush tetras was actually one of the bands i knew alongside esg i didn't know their connection to 99 um i liked them anyway they're a staple on my halloween playlist because the other side of this record was too many creeps and i thought people might know that track so i didn't choose that one i went for can't be funky um and yeah this was actually they released this 1981 and then they did they did reform uh, in the mid-90s. So unlike ESG, who've just kind of appeared in many guises throughout the decades, Bush Tetris took a bit of a break, came back together, um, and their last release was in 2018 um, via Wolf Cat Records. Um, but I read, which is really sad, that it wasn't with the original bassist. So um, their original bassist, Laura Kennedy, died from uh, liver disease. So they did do some shows, but it wasn't necessarily kind of the Bush Tetris of this era. Okay, so well, there we go. That's probably a good time to. I mean, I'm guessing with the name can't be funky, that is going to be pretty funky, right? 
Uh, yeah, it's it's ultimate funk. <laughs> Perfect. Let's uh, let let's not be funky. We can't be funky. Oh, that sounded like a horrendous DJ thing. Let's let's have some cop now. Music. Um, okay, so so putting it back to me for a while because that's what I tend to do. Um, my formative music years were in the nineties, and. In the early 90s, every indie band, even the indiest of indie bands, went through a phase of having a 12, an extended version of the single on a 12-inch. And it'll be, here's the dance version of, I don't know, Stone Roses, or here's, here's um, they'd get ragged versions and dub versions, mm. and there'd always be like a six, seven-minute version on the B-side. I think it was the, the heyday of random indie dance mixes um why am i saying this well the next track is a 12 inch version of a song which is brilliant because we don't hear 12 inch versions of songs what is it a couple of questions what is it and also is it a legitimate version of a song or is it just a song with a bit repeated a few times <laughs> all good questions so the band's is Maximum Joy, which I think if I was going to be in another band, that would probably be the name of my band. Uh, and the track is called Stretch. It's an interesting one. Yeah, I think you've you've kind of um, tapped into it there, is that it's very telling that it came out on a 12-inch, I think because of the fact that it was actually licensed uh, by 99 Records from Y Records. So it's brought out stateside by this band who are actually an English band from bristol so um but yeah so there's kind of that synergy which we're going to go further into of this continued relationship between sort of the uk and new york um and more specifically we'll go into kind of manchester and manhattan because i just find that so interesting bristol's Uh, bristol's an interesting one because in my head in my head music in bristol didn't start until um trip hop i mean i'm obviously wrong right but I can't think of things before that. No, and also when you listen to this track, I wouldn't have said to you, and I think probably because I've got those assumptions in my head as well, that this band is from Bristol. They sound much like people said about ESG, actually, but the other way around. They, everyone thought ESG were from London because the, that Moody EP came out on Factory Records. Um, and I think similarly with this, I just totally assumed they were from like downtown New York. Uh, it has that kind of slits feel, um, which I... I love and and it does that bridging that we were talking about before with the no way scene so it's got that afro bit it's got lots of horns oh it's just such a tune <laughs> okay so when you say afro beat and lots of mm. horns i'm guessing this is, i'm guessing this is mid 80s this is actually early 80s so it's okay. 1981 yeah oh wow uh, yeah uh, which is interesting but it's definitely that pivotal thing as i've said before of kind of influencing future genres um but again like esg a band like maximum joy just sort of flew under the radar um they janine rainforth the vocalist clarinet player and violinist of the band did go on to form a sort of new outfit and had an album out in 2019 and she did that very trendy thing that churches and always have done where there's lots of like vowels and things so it it is sort of still called maximum joy but it hasn't got any it's like mxmjy yeah Um, yeah, that would just annoy me (laughs) and then also tony who plays saxophone in the band tony rafter he was on tricky's record which i didn't know and i thought was very interesting wait so we've got clarinet violin and saxophone 
Yeah, that's what I mean. You're gonna, I mean, you're gonna love it. it. <laughs> I'm going in slightly, slightly nervous, but <laughs> no. But let's <laughs> listen to the name of the band, Maximum Joy, and that is the resulting feeling. All right, then, Maximum Joy and Stretch, twelve inch version. <laughs> So you mentioned the name Vivian Goldman earlier on. And I, as we're recording this, um, if you were looking on Zoom, I sort of nodded my head with a smile. Like I, I knew what you're talking about. Um, I kind of don't. Um, just for the listener, obviously, who hasn't got access to Wikipedia right now, um, who is Vivian Goldman? What, and why is Vivian Goldman important in this, this story? Yes. So Vivian Goldman um, is an amazing woman and I think if you when you introduced me at the start of the show and you called me a polymath this is the original polymath so Vivian Goldman (laughs) (laughs) she is a journalist a writer a musician um she is a reggae scholar so she's actually uh NYU's professor of punk which is just awesome and she was notoriously Bob uh, Bob Marley's first UK publicist as well um but the reason I've brought her in here not only for her wealth of knowledge about kind of women in punk but also because she did also license her record 299 records so the track we're going to hear is off um dirty laundry ep and that ep was actually produced by none other uh, than john lydon so she came over yeah to new york with john lydon with his kind of seal of approval and i think that gave her a certain clout when she arrived at 99 records and then licensed this track Laundrette to Ed Ballam, who put it out uh, in 1981 as well, all happening around 1981. But one of the reasons I spoke to her specifically for the book as well, uh, Revenge of the She-Punks, which came out in 2019, is she's got an amazing chapter about finances and money and how that, that kind of intersects with music and women in music and obviously our continual theme of royalties and samples came up with her. And, um, yeah, it was just very interesting to hear her thoughts about it. Having been a label mate of ESG, obviously she was a bit older than the girls at the time. She didn't have loads of interaction, but she saw them at the 99 records shop. Um, but she talks a lot about how there was kind of maybe a darker side to Ed Ballam and the 99 okay. Records story and whether even though there were similarities to um, Jeff Travis and Rough Trade, I don't, I don't know and I'm still exploring it in the book, but whether there was kind of knowing um, and sort of uh, taking, I don't want to say taking advantage, but almost, you know. Okay, well, well let's, instead of talking directly about them, yeah. Do you think there was more of a culture of, I'm going to say, young female artists, say, mm. being taken advantage of musically and, and finances and royalties than, yeah. say, young male artists? Or were they just young artists in general who were just rife that's, for... Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, I I, I don't know on a on the flip side from a male perspective whether they were seeing the same thing but yes certainly for the young girls and particularly sg because they was were so young um but so popular people were so enchanted by what they were doing um but they didn't really have you know any uh 
of a t- they didn't really have much of a team. They didn't have like anyone. I can't imagine them knowing anyone who was well versed in like music business. And they were just turning up to shows with their mom. And so I think they're signing things. And I mean, to be fair, Fliss and I had a similar experience. Like you, you don't really know this stuff when you're signing contracts and you're maybe not looking over things as critically and maybe there are more frameworks now and more sort of um even like accessible funds or grants or council supported programs to help with artists now i I mean i guess it's also google i mean that google wasn't wasn't there Um, yeah there's resource sharing and yeah that's true uh, i like to think that my entire knowledge about the record industry is from artists third album Every band's yeah. third album is when they they can't sing about their life anymore and they all start singing yeah. songs about the record labels that they're on. And I've learned quite a lot. I mean, Jeffrey Lewis has taught me never don't let the record label take me out to lunch because I'll be paying for it. Um, Stereophonics did one. I think you two, have, yeah, every band gets, they run out of things to talk about and they just talk about their record deal. So that's all I know. I mean, I've never, yeah. I was one of the few people who was never in a band uh, when I was growing up. Everyone else was and I just went and watched yeah, it's a whole other book in itself, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's just so, a chapter in mine. <laughs> um, so it's Vivian Goldman, and yes. the track is Laundrette. And much as I said with Bush Tetras, it has that kind of, I guess, sort of slitzy reggae vibe. Obviously, she's hugely influential in reggae as well. So, big fan of that. She, um, yeah, she interestingly was a child of two uh, German Jewish refugees from North Germany. So, she's been all over. She has a house in Jamaica now. She, um, yeah, she's a, a wonderful, wonderful human. And I am so grateful to have her words in the book. But this track is, yeah, it's just a masterpiece. So, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, flag bearers of, of music scene. So usually when there's a music scene, there's this, like this sort of iceberg. So um, for all of your, all of your blurs at the top of the iceberg of Britpop, you had your menswears and whatever <laughs> sinking further down below um, in the early, well, early eighties, late, well, late seventies with the factory record, uh, et cetera. I mean, Joy Division would be the one that people sort of look up in this scene were ESG the biggest of them? No, there's usually a breakthrough that everybody knows about, right? Yeah, I guess so. I w- definitely wouldn't say that ESG were at all. Um, I think possibly now in hindsight, like I can't imagine me have pi- having pitched a book on maybe any of the other artists. Like right. it's such a good story and they were so in a- innovative at the time and what they were doing and their influence, you know, as we've talked about, has just continued to impress everyone from kind of James Murphy to Karen O of the AAS. Um, but I think the interesting thing is this kind of ongoing, as you said, with your analogy, the sort of iceberg and then all the stuff that's happening below. And I think 99 records is probably in that downtown underground scene, um, which we now know and is very revered. But at the same time, there was a huge, you know, new wave scene with mainstream pop acts like Blondie in New York as well. And so I have woven some Blondie in here, but largely because I really like that she bridges the gap between those two scenes. So whilst sometimes with the 99 Records uh, story, obviously it gets quite bogged down in sampling and rights and the fact that that's how the label became defunct 
But at the same time, there's someone like Debbie Harry who is flying the flag for a black artist and hip hop titan Fab Five Freddy in The Rapture. And um, I love this song. And I and actually I spoke to, I think I mentioned her earlier, Kathy Iandoli for the book. And she talked a lot about Debbie Harry and, and like the amazing work she did to bridge that gap between the, the mainstream and the black community and just kind of crediting people where credit was due. Um, and I really liked that. And, and I think um, I, I love Debbie Harry anyway. And I just, you know, made me beam hearing that. So it had to be Rapture. I also then consequently read about the video for the track and um, it's very roundabout, brings back in our narrative arc rainbow beautifully, is that um, in the video, uh, Fab Five Freddy is in it, obviously, name check. And she asked Basquiat, Jean Basquiat, to be in it, but he didn't make the shoot in time. So who came instead but Grandmaster Flash? Fresh from the court case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fresh from the Sugar Hill court case, exactly. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, because when I saw Blondie on this list, I was like, wait, mm. how Blondie's not no Much, wave, but is no. new wave, but obviously, yeah. but now you said there was this sort of tying together. And I guess. A lot of scenes, bands get lumped into a scene when they're not yeah. really in that scene. Going back to the Britpop analogy, Blue Tones were a Britpop band. They sounded like something yeah. from the West Coast of America, but they were around yeah. at that time. And yeah. so music journalists just shoved them together. Um, on the Temporary Fandoms pod, we talked a bit about Riot Girl when we're looking at, when we're talking, doing Slater Kinney and how yeah. in the early days you had, oh, they're female, they've got guitars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we've got Rapture, and I, I appreciate Debbie Harry, and I like Debbie Harry, but I never, mm. I've never loved Debbie Harry. Mm. Debbie Barry, Debbie Harry. <laughs> um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I think it's okay. because I'm at that period of my life now that every wedding I've gone to, when when Blondie comes on, oh, no, it's one of the most, shame, it's yeah. one of the most important, one of the, the the most embarrassing moments musically. Um, yeah, and everyone comes. I think that's oh, why God. it's good that it's this track actually, because yeah. Rapture's awesome, and it's not every day you get like the front person of this sort of mainstream pop act rapping about um, a, a hip hop titan. So <laughs> I do. I mean, it's 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 oft quoted or oft um, cited, sorry, as the first um, mainstream. And when I think when they say mainstream, I think they say encode white uh, mainstream <laughs> yeah. artist to rap or at least getting the charts. Was it? Was it? I don't, I don't know. know. And I feel like Kathy would know the answer to this very unequivocally because obviously hip hop, it's really interesting, the synergy actually, when you, when I was researching around the South Bronx and at the same time that ESG were, you know, and this dance scene was kicking off, hip hop was also emerging as well. And we go into house and we have Chippy. And uh, so, it, yeah, the the two of them going side by side, I think the, the greatest, um, part of this track is that it, it kind of merges the two and it shows what was going on in New York and that there were lots of these incredibly innovative sounds happening. And hopefully this gave a bit more light to someone like Five, Five Freddy. Okay, right. Then it's time for rap. I was going to say it's time for the rapture, but that would have had people claxons <laughs> and people screaming and uh, <laughs> horns coming from on high. It's time for rapture. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if Rapture was was Debbie Harry doing this sort of tip of the hat to the burgeoning um, rap hip hop, I never I never get the difference right um, scene. Um, our next track is well, we're, we're basically throwing the door open, right? 
We're we're in it. Yeah, we're going from Blondie's Eat to the Beat to Fab Five Freddy's Change the Beat. Um, Thanks. You see, you worry about these segues and here I am with my (laughs) (laughs) dreadful ones. Um, So yeah, I kind of already talked a bit about Fab Five Freddy and I've said to you off air, I am not a hip hop um, expert. I will recommend Kathy Iandoli's book. It's phenomenal. Um, for more on that, but I, I thought he was an interesting character to reference, particularly because he did emerge from the downtown scene in the late 1970s in New York as this graffiti artist, and then he kind of bridged that gap, as you said, between uptown rap scene and downtown no wave scene. So I, in the exact time period we're looking at for MSG 10, it mm-hmm. felt like a no brainer. Um, and also I guess that, that influence, that constant influence of hip hop with um, ESG and how that's kind of plagued their career um, since the early days of the, the EP. Uh, yeah. So this is going to be change the beat from Fab Five Freddy. Yeah, well, we're going straight into it because neither of us know a lot about rap or hip hop, so we're not even going to pretend. Here you go. Lovely. Um, so we talked earlier on about Ed Ballam, and in my head, it was kind of the, this New York music empresario. Um, and we also, I brief, I briefly mentioned um, sort of Joy Division and that sort of sound. Um, Tony Wilson um, would be another sort of type of empresario that I'm trying to think of. And and our next track kind of bridges a link between the two, right? It does, yeah. And I tried really hard to find this link in song form. I think in the book it's going to be a breeze. There's lots of band crossovers. Um, But the main thing for me was I really wanted to up uh, more women on this playlist, unsurprisingly. And wow, I scrolled through a lot of the discography. Um, I just felt like Joy Division might have been a bit of a clanger in this funky soundtrack. So instead, I've gone for Quando Quango. I'm so glad you said it. And I'm so excited. Excited to have found this band. So the the lovely bridge as well is that um, the band was formed by Hacienda DJ and Factory Records A and R man Mike Pickering, and the track is going a little bit later. We're going into 1982, and it's called Go Exciting. Um, they really have gone so I'm, exciting. I'm, 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 I'm just I'm just going to say, and I said this on the mm. previous episode. Um, there's a current phase in mark, uh, thing in marketing where they sort of things like. Um, they, they take a verb or an adjective and they do the sense oh, of like let's, a, let's active or and go yeah. exciting sounds like one of those things that i would see at a commercial and go no you can't go exciting <laughs> oh i feel like they might have set the tone for that yeah kind of 40 years ago <laughs> okay so, so so who is quando quango yeah. um what yeah so the in i thought one of the interesting um reasons i picked this this particular track is obviously Mike's this Hacienda DJ and we all know the Hacienda as being this kind of fabled club in Manchester. And, you know, it was notoriously, I think Peter Hook and a bunch of pals went in to rescue it and bought the club. Um, But ESG were the band that opened the, the night that the club began. So they're one of the opening acts, which is you know, how on earth this sister troupe from the South Bronx made it over there. But that's one of the things I wanted to unearth and look into in the book. So I spoke with Peter Hook for the book 
and um yeah he definitely as you said linked it back to to tony wilson his relationship with new york as well apparently when um the first time that joy division went to the u.s tony was already over there um with a certain ratio which was another factory Records I, I band was, at the time. My, brain, my when every time factory records comes up I, my brain always goes oh yeah so there was joy division and then who was the, who was the next big one who was the one that was going to be the next big oh yeah a certain ratio they were, um, they were the next big thing and they exactly yeah worked. so he was over there <laughs> flogging a certain ratio and then joy division came out and apparently they recorded ceremony in a new jersey studio so again there's that kind of link between manchester and manhattan um and yeah no one kind of really knew why other than tony's belief i guess and excitement around both scenes mirroring similar ethos and certainly when i asked peter about why why esg and why were they open opening apparently tony insisted and that was i guess he had heard them and liked them and brought them over it does sound like a very tony wilson thing to go okay so we've got we've got new york we've got manhattan london would love to be the sister city the sister scene going on exactly manchester it's going to be manchester Yeah, that's exactly it. And it does. It feels like that. Um, And definitely that relationship just kind of continues. You end up finding like a lot of different mixes. And as we were saying before, with one of the bands where you think like they could totally sound like they're from New York, but they're from Bristol. And likewise, ESG, they've really found a home here in the UK. And and Renee even says that when they keep coming back here. And she just loves playing for a a UK crowd because... Obviously, yeah, we were one obviously, of the first. Obviously, not those crowds in the south. I'm sorry, I'm from the Midlands, <laughs> and and I've never known. I mean, okay, first of all, Wolverhampton crowds are amazing because people from the oh, Midlands yeah. seem to be very. Uh, oh my God, you're playing here! Everybody played there, but we're really happy about <laughs> it. You go, you go to Leeds Festival, people are dancing around. You go down South, people are standing there. I lived in Brighton for years. You go to a gig in Brighton, and I'm really sorry, Brighton. I love you to pieces, but everybody's standing around going. Uh huh. Entertain me. I don't have to be here, you know. I've got other <laughs> things I could be doing. And I, I can contest that the one time I saw ESG, they were at um, the Queen Elizabeth Hall at the South Bank, and it was a seated venue. And I remember walking in thinking, "This is really strange. Like we're not at an exhibition. I'm not at a theatre." performance and by the end of it so many people had got up from their seats and they were just milling around down in the kind of not intended to be mosh pit area (laughs) getting funky so i think um yeah yeah maybe the the keeping it north made sense at the time keep it midlands and north yeah i'm sorry the south you've got a lot of things enjoy those anyway quando quango which i can't believe i haven't screwed up the name yet quando quango here we go well we're we're rapidly approaching well we're at the final song here and um well the common thread throughout this shuri has been the band esg which incidentally if you want to find out more about and you can't wait for shuri's book there is we did do a podcast with shuri and zoe on temporary fandom season two i believe um so we're just we're going to finish with esg right is this i mean it's, it's a good ending it's a good ending i've tried to um and you'll note that i've mirrored this approach in the book as well i've tried to show and demonstrate the massive impact that a band like esg has had and continues to have on modern music so throughout their career i guess both in a good way and a bad way they've been referenced they've been sampled there's been lots of collaborations and lots of covers they prop up a lot 
uh, during Record Store Day. So this track that I've chosen is a collaboration with um, Argentinian group Las Kellys, who I'm a huge fan of anyway. And uh, they teamed up to work on Erasure, which is an original ESG track in 2012. But Prior to that, the record store day just before that, they also appeared on a compilation cover album for Franz Ferdinand, which is quite a weird one. I did try and approach Franz Ferdinand. They didn't <laughs> come back to me. Um, but they did a covers EP and ESG lent their uh, kind of talents to what she came for, which was the collab between Franz and Rene. Um, and yeah, is and again, in our narrative arc, there were so many names that came up because on the same covers EP for Franz Ferdinand that year, they had um, James Murphy. They covered uh, All My Friends by LCD Sound System. And there was a collaboration be- between Franz Ferdinand and Debbie Harry. I mean, you couldn't get neater than that, could you? There we go. Well, I mean, that sounds perfect. So <laughs> I think we're just, just going to finish that. I mean, okay, here is ESG and Las Kelly's and the track was... Erase You. I'd say it's a torta version, but it still shows how their like funk sound has just been immortalized uh, over time. Right. Well, well that was that was it. We've taken a 10 song journey through No Wave 99 Records ESG. Um Cherie, it's been fantastic having you on and thank you ever so much for telling us this story. It's been very funky, hasn't it? Yeah, it ha- I have it has been loved funky. it. <laughs> Squonking for the Scroggins, yeah. Um, and obviously, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, if you want to listen to more of these, um, the best way is on the Mixcloud, which is free, and that is mixcloud.com slash tempfans. If you want to find out more about Sheree's work, that is shereamore.co.uk. Um, you can listen to this on any pod thing but obviously there's no music but you know subscribe on there there will be a spotify link don't forget the temporary fandoms uh, which you can find at tempfans.com where we go through discography after discography after discography um i think there's nothing else really to say so see you later let's hit the dance floor <laughs> <Yay>! <laughs> <laughs>